You're listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to nrhbc.org. I'm telling you, my cup is full. (laughs) Running over. Turn in your Bible, if you would, to Luke chapter 2. I want to look at one of the more familiar texts in the Scripture from a little different vantage point, and that is the vantage point of family, of home, of parenting, of relating to one another in Christ Jesus. You know, uh, I am so thrilled to be here today. Uh, Brother Adam was supposed to be here. There were some flight issues. So I want to thank you for what you guys do through the cooperative program, our means of giving to support agencies and institutions like uh, Southwestern Seminary. And there is a, a booth out there with a couple of students. If you'd like to stop by and get to know a little bit about what was going on, I would encourage you to do so. So I want to ask you a question. We begin in this whole series on on parenting and the home and the family. How as a parent, or as a grandparent in that case, do you evaluate your own parenting? What, What is the goal of your parenting? Are you thinking more about the academic attainment of your children? Obviously, we're interested in that, and so we insist they go to school. Is is that the goal? Do do you know if you've been a successful parent because your child gets good grades, goes to the right college. For some, it may be athletic prowess. So you get kind of involved and you've got a kid that's uh, got the ability to do what you couldn't do and only dreamed of when you were in high school and you begin to uh, go into the travel soccer leagues or whatever it is. Is that a a goal that, that you've established? What about financial security? I don't know a parent that doesn't want their children to do well, to succeed in business and and in life, or perhaps it is social skills. You want to make sure they uh, have a good marriage, a good relationship, and develop that over time. Now, there's nothing wrong with any of those goals, and most parents that I know want to be good parents, but it's a tough job. I, I guess if you're a parent, I'm not giving you any news. It, it, it doesn't come with all the labels that you ought to have in the beginning, and so parenting is a difficult task. May I suggest this morning that we establish a little different goal that encompasses the others, as you'll see. So as a, as a parent, as a dad, now as a granddad of 12, by the way, I've added a few. I didn't add a few. My kids added a few, and so I, I was appreciative of that. I suggest that we ought to establish this goal. That our goal for our children is that they come to know Christ as Savior and King, and that they see every other attainment in the context of advancing God's kingdom by His power and for His glory. Now, we don't have a whole lot of models sometimes for parenting, but I want to suggest to you maybe a couple that you've never considered in terms of parenting. That's Mary and Joseph. Why did sovereign God of the universe, when he chose to send his only begotten son to planet earth, choose parents? You say, well, he had to have a birth. Well, God's God and he could do what he wanted to. The virgin birth is a bit of a mystery to all of us, but we do know that he chose two people. He chose Mary and he gives us the qualifications, her righteousness, an upright woman. She was probably a late teen at this time. Joseph, 
He was a righteous man. In fact, even when he found out that his wife-to-be was pregnant, he, he chose not to put her away, but to, to, according to the God's Word, to, to nurture and care for her and kept her a virgin until the time that Jesus was born. The, these were two unique people that God chose to entrust His only begotten Son. So the story that I'm going to is in Luke's gospel. You may have already turned there. Luke is an interesting gospel. I've been working back through this year during COVID, some of the gospel narratives, and I've been reading throughout. And and for most of us, Luke is a favorite. I I don't know if it is for you. Mark is kind of a a men's gospel in many ways because everything in Mark is immediately. I don't know if you ever noticed that, but it's the word immediately, immediately, immediately. Doesn't have as much teaching, a lot of action. We kind of like that. But Luke was a Gentile. Unusual that God used a Gentile to author a book that's primarily Jewish, isn't it? He's a physician. Does it surprise you there are more healing miracles in Luke's gospel anywhere else? If you were a physician, what would impress you about Jesus? Obviously, those things did. There's more stories for women in the gospel of Luke than anywhere else. He pays more attention to children outcasts, downcast. He is the kind of the people's gospel. And so it is interesting that the only real story about Jesus' childhood is in Luke's gospel. Uh, There's an interesting kind of tool that the Holy Spirit uses when he really wants to draw your attention to something. He'll create a picture frame uh, that oftentimes will include the same words or phrases to cause you to look in there to see what he's saying. So if you're open now to Luke chapter 2, I want us to look a little bit at this picture frame. So I'm going to read two verses, skip over the text, then we'll come back to the text. Verse 41, now his parents, notice the focus of Luke is on the parents here. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. And he said, okay, what's important about that? Back it up, one verse, 41, 40. The child continued to grow and to become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. See that window? Go down. Here's the next one, 52. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom, statue, Favor with God and man. So he begins the story by telling us that Jesus was growing in these various dimensions of life. He ends the story. So what he's doing is drawing our attention to the story that's in between. He wants us to see what was it that contributed to that. Now they're separated by about 12 years. The first story, the first verse 40, is at the end of a narrative at Jesus' birth. So we have the story of his birth. Then they take him to the temple when he's eight years old, eight days old. And at the end of that story, Luke tells us, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Jesus kept maturing in these ways. Now we get to 12. That's probably a time when they were preparing him for his bar mitzvah, which was a, a rite of passage for Jews, kind of a spiritual anchor. And at the end of that story that we're going to focus on, what he tells us again is what? He tells us, that Jesus kept increasing in these ways. So now I want to go back to the context. I'm not going to read every verse, but I want you to read every verse. I want you to look at it in your Bible and 
If you're like me and you underline, underline your Bible. If you don't like to write in your Bible, write in your notepaper, whatever it is. Go back all the way to verse 21. We've had the birth of Jesus, and now we come to this interesting period of time just after his birth. And and I'm going to have you underline some phrases. Verse 21, and when he was eight days had passed, before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name underlined given by the angel. In other words, we, the whole naming of this son, Jesus, the, uh, the kind of Greek equivalent Joshua, has to do with his saving power, as you remember the leading there, but that was given by the angel. So they, they actually named the child in obedience to Revelation, but that's not all. Verse 23, they did this as it is written in the law of the Lord. Look at verse 24. And they offered a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord. Now we're going to have a little interlude there, and we're going to go down to verse 33. And his father and his mother. Do you notice that Luke is actually paying more attention to these parents than he is at this point to Jesus. We're going to get to him in the story, but what he wants us to understand is that these parents were influential in this growth and maturation of Jesus, and the key phrase all the way through, repeated time and time again, is that they did everything according to what? The law. He's talking about the Torah. He's talking about those first five books. He's talking about the Scriptures. So here's a question for you. Ponder it. How many of you as parents, as you found out you were pregnant or expecting or even after that child came, did you saturate yourself with the Word of God to say, what does the Word of God tell me about what I need to do for these children? You see, Mary and Joseph were chosen not only because of their righteousness, but because of their obedience and their fidelity to God's law. And they set themselves intentionally to do everything according to the Word of God in parenting Jesus. Now, later in the story, you're going to see something rather fascinating. The scene's going to flip. Jesus, you remember, is in the temple. Parents leave. He's still there. And so, in the beginning, he's listening to and questioning the the rabbis, the scribes, the teachers there, uh, the priests in the, in the temple. And then the story flips, and, and you're going to see it when we read it in just a moment. All of a sudden, they begin to question him. And they're amazed at his answers. Where did Jesus get this knowledge of God's Word? It's going to test your theology a little. In the incarnation, do you honestly believe that Jesus was fully man? The right answer is yes. You can nod your head. If he's fully man, that means he has every limitation your children have. He's as fully human as we are. So it's not as if you say, oh, well, God, Jesus had to know all that scripture because he's God. And so he wrote it all, right? There was that limitation period of his earthly life where he was taught the Word of God by his own parents. He knew the Word because they had instilled this Word not only in teaching but in modeling. 
Do you see, he's going to say they did this every year. In other words, they're going to make it consistent. Luke is going to tell you that what they did at his bar mitzvah, what they did in doing this at the temple. Now, they went to synagogue every time in their local area gathering together, but they went to the temple for Passover. So we understand the Jewish background. So what Luke is trying to say is that they didn't just do this because Junior's now 12 years old and he needs to go down to the Baptist church to get baptized because we need to get that over with. You know, we got to get him through that rite of passage. This was the consistent pattern. They did this every year. Jesus had grown up watching his parents know and teach him how to worship. In fact, it makes a point to tell you, we're going to read it in a minute. I know you're saying, is he going to ever read this text? We are. I'm trying to tell you what to look for. It's going to tell you they stayed the entire three days. You see, some of them went there and they got their part done, they made their sacrifice, and they went back home. Now, I'm going to date myself here, but some of you will get this. If you don't, ask the first crowd. They got it. You don't understand what I'm telling you, you know. You know, they, they went Sunday school, connection groups, Bible study, fellowship. Then they went to church. Then they came back for church training. I just dated myself. That was the evening before evening worship. And then they came back for Wednesday night church. In other words, if the door opened, they were there. I, I grew up in the Baptist home. My daddy was a country Baptist preacher, and I thought he was a janitor for years because he opened it and he closed it, and I was with him. So if the door was open, I was there because my dad was there. When the, when the door closed, it was because he locked it up on his way out. And if they had church another day, I was there too. I was actually talking with Dr. Muller recently from Southern Seminary on our campus he said, I think part of the problem we're having in our denomination right now is the fact that when you and I grew up, you were there Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. If you had RAs or GAs, you were there that time too. And he said, when I began to look at my childhood, everything in my childhood centered around the Word of God and the people of God. That was the life of Jesus. Now notice, oh, I need to read the text, don't I? All right. So go back in your Bible here. As they were, and so when he became 12, uh, verse 42, they went up there according to the, oh, we're going to underline it again, the custom of the feast. Same thing as the, the law of Moses. So there was a law, there was a custom, so they were able to do this. And so when he became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast, and they were returning after spending the full number of days the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents were unaware of it. Now, I'm going to have to come back to that because some of you are saying you're using them as a model of parenting and they leave their kid at church. All right, we're going to get there. They supposed him to be in the caravan. They went a day's journey. They began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they didn't find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then after three days, they found him. So they went a day out, went a day back, had to take a day to get to the temple and find him. He was sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed. Here's the flip. At his understanding and his answers. <laughs> Somewhere, the, the, the scene changed, and Jesus was asking the, the theologians there about the Scriptures and amazed them in his curiosity, but then somewhere in this story, 
there's a scene that flips, and the theologians realize they're in the presence of theological acumen that they had known nothing of. And they begin asking the boy Jesus, and they're amazed at his answers. I'm suggesting this not because he was divine and God poured all those answers in his head. It's because the sovereign God of the universe chose to entrust his only begotten son to Mary and Joseph who committed to do everything in his life according to Scripture. He knew not only about his father's business because they had taught him. It's not as if the father is manipulating this. They they taught him this word in such a way that he understood it. When they saw him, they were astonished, verse 48. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. His response, why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Listen to it. I'm, I'm a little surprised you guys are looking for me. You have instilled in me from my childhood that my place was in this place of worship, this house of my father, this house of prayer. I'm I'm surprised you were surprised that I'm still here because that's how you raised me. They didn't understand fully this statement which he had made. He went down with them. We're going to come back to that. And he came to Nazareth and he continued in subjection to them. Son of God in subjection to his parents. His mother treasured everything in his heart, and Jesus kept increasing in wisdom, stature, favor with God, and with man. All right. Notice the the son's focus on this kingdom business, that, that at this point in time, he's 12 years old, but already his focus was on accomplishing his father's mission. Now, I did promise to come back to this story about parents, if this is the model of parenting, how they could leave their kid at church. Well, first of all, you need to realize they did travel literally in caravans, particularly if they were coming to Jerusalem from some distance, which obviously is the case here. And so they would travel as family clans virtually. This is like if you need a picture, and those of you old enough will figure this picture, you remember when you had dinner on the grounds at the church? Well, this is the dinner on the grounds that travels. It's kind of like a, you know, a, a backyard barbecue on wheels. And so all the families gathered, and the kids would kind of do their thing. Parents are back here doing what they do. The kids are out playing, playing with their nephews and nieces, and they're traveling that way. So the first time that they recognized he was gone was when they camped for the night. So you don't travel during the night because of the robbers and thieves of that day. And so the next day they head back. They have to get there, and then it takes a day to find him. So the explanation, some of you aren't buying this, are you? Well, it actually happened to me. When I was pastoring First Norfolk, we had the three Sunday morning services like you do. We had Sunday night church. And by the end of preaching four times, and I taught Sunday school before church, and I did Saturday night. Now, I was just kind of toast. I was a little marshmallow brain at that point in time. And so my wife and I always drove two different cars to church because we came at different times and left at different times. And so in the evening, my children knew dad will get home first. And so they were always looking to ride home with me, particularly Katie, who was my youngest at the time, because she had a special game she loved to play on Sunday nights. It's called hide and seek. 
She loved hide and seek. It was her favorite thing to do. Kids are funny about this because she would hide and she would always hide in the same place. I mean, you know, she had this favorite hiding place like you couldn't find her and she would giggle the whole time she's hidden. I guess if you can't see me, you can't hear me. And I tried to help her with this game, but it didn't work very much. So we had a starting way. So the garage door, I would always, when I drove in, I'd shut the garage door because the garage door would give her plenty of time to go hide. Mom's home. And so we would always start the game the same way. I would go to the garage door when Paula was coming in, and in a loud preacher's voice, I would say, hey, honey, oh, where's Katie? Where's Katie, honey? I thought Katie was with you. And she would mock surprise and say, oh, no, we must have left Katie at church. And Katie's giggling behind the door, you know. And so we go in and go with this big search, and we finally find Katie, and it's all well and good, except one night when I walked to the door, I said, where's Katie, honey? And she's smiling. She said, oh, I thought, I said, I'm serious. <laughs> Katie did not come home with me. Yeah, we left Katie at church. <laughs> uh, one of my deacons called me and said, Pastor, we love your sermons on parenting, by the way. You left your youngest daughter at church. What shall we do? I said, keep her for a week. Uh, you know. No, I didn't. So the reality is it's, it's not as not what it looks like on the surface here. Notice something interesting here. I want you to notice mainly this astonishing knowledge of his answers to them and his focus on his father's kingdom. His parents had instilled in him such a passion for the word of God and the will of God that he is a 12-year-old surprised that they would even ask why he was still there. He had no desire to leave. This, this was his father's house. And he had been taught to love his father's house. One day when I was at Norfolk, and we, we'd gotten into so many worship services that my deacon suggested, why don't you and your family stay home on Sunday night? You know, you're preaching Saturday night. You're doing all those morning services. Your family's always there with you. So I gathered the kids around the table, and I said, uh, hey, guys, I said, deacons have, uh, have made a suggestion I think you guys will love. I said, we can stay home Sunday night, and we can have pizza and watch Disney. That was when Disney was on on Sunday night. And, and my girls kind of look at me, and they said, well, why would we do that? I said, well, you know, we're, we're, we're there all day. And my oldest daughter said, well, that's my youth choir. I'm not going to miss youth choir. And one of them said, no, that's when my GAs meet. And finally they looked and said, well, Dad, if you're tired, you can stay home. We're going to church. I said, if you're going, I'm going. I'm not staying here by myself. It was their, it was their life. It was their passion. And so was with Jesus. Now, I want you to notice quickly, because I'm kind of watching time here, the obedient child. Even though Jesus is developing through Scripture and his parents an understanding of his bigger role in his father's kingdom, when his parents came and brought some level of discipline, I suppose you could say, it says he went down with them and came to Nazareth and he continued in subjection to them. Ephesians talks about the role of parents and children and to children, and fortunately we have a number in this service, it says that they're to honor their father and mother. 
Now, we parents love to point that one out. I have my children memorize that verse. But you make sure you memorize the next one because it says, do not exasperate your children, but to discipline or disciple them in the Lord. Same root. There's two different words that are going to be used in this passage. One is to bring correction. The other is to admonish, to encourage. And so parents have this role of encouraging their children in the Lord. It's not just encouraging them, but they're encouraging them in the Lord. You see, children, I'm going to ask you a question. Do you see obedience to your parents as a kingdom commitment? Parents, do you see the discipling of your children as a kingdom agenda item? Now, I want us to notice finally this kind of balanced development. Some years ago, I was reading a business book, and it related to, uh, and it was not a, it was not a, it was a secular book on those leadership people who kind of succeed, leadership book. It's by uh, a man who used the title Concommitted Growth. He said that those people who succeed the most and impact most lives are balanced in their growth. There, there, there are a lot of people who grow in one area. They may be academically brilliant, but they have no people skills. Others have a people skills, but they didn't apply themselves in the area of academics, and so they, they, they're unbalanced in their growth. But he, he had this, done this study that showed that those who have the greatest achievement in life and the greatest meaning and purpose in life had this concomitant growth. Now, I want us to go back to those verses we started with. And Jesus grew in wisdom, stature, favor with God, and with man. What is wisdom? First of all, let me define it a little bit scripturally. It's the ability to apply knowledge. It's not simply knowledge. It's not just book learning. It's what do you do with the book learning? How, how do you apply wisdom? Now, in the Old Testament, wisdom begins with what? The fear of God. So here's a kind of an updated definition for you. As parents, one of our goals in kingdom development is helping our children to view everything through the prism or the lens of God's Word. So that our concern for the intellectual development of our children is from a worldview that truth is established by God and in His Word. Now, I cannot begin to tell you how critical this is in our day. If you look at our world and you look at our nation and you think, Man, I listen to the news, and I listen to one channel, I turn to another channel, and it sounds like a different world. And if you look at something, and you look at it, and you say, I don't understand how people can think that way. The reason is, we are now dealing with a very different lens on the world. When believers look through the lens of Scripture, we're dealing with everything as a truth established by God's Word. Now, this, this alters everything, because our worldview begins with a God who created, a God who redeemed, a God who established moral standards, and who's coming again in judgment. Now, we're dealing with some issues today that we've never had to deal with in the kinds of ways that we're dealing with, and some of them have to do with sexual morality. And I, I deal with students on a college campus, many of whom have come out of very raw, strong Christian homes, 
And many of them will go, well, I don't know why the church is so strong on whatever the issue is in terms of sexual purity. And they'll say, well, that was kind of an old-fashioned standard. Well, the truth of the matter is, nothing old-fashioned about the Word of God. And the standard for sexual purity was established by God who created you and created sex as one of His greatest gifts to mankind between one man and one woman for life. And so the standard there, this wisdom, this prism, is that this Christian worldview must impact what we hear in in elementary school, in junior high, in senior high, and in college. My wife's reading a book or listening to a book now. I think it's called The Coddling of the American Mind, so don't quote me if I quoted her wrong. She was right, and I probably didn't pay enough attention. She was listening to it on the way to Nashville yesterday. And this guy is not a Christian writer. He's talking about what's happening in the university system that has so influenced everything that's happening in our nation right now. When you were in school 20, 30 years ago, apparently the the research indicates that on campus among faculty and even students, for everyone who had a conservative worldview by that basically believes kind of truth narrative, there were two liberals who did not have that worldview. So if you were sitting in class of 20, uh, somewhere around seven of you would have had a similar worldview about truth against the other 14. Are you with me? Following the math today, it's now one in 20. So if you're sitting in a classroom with 20 students and you view truth through the prism of God's Word, you're probably the only one sitting there with that. Do you know how difficult it is to stand for that truth if you're standing alone? Folks, I'm going to tell you, there's never been a more important day for Christian education in the home, in the church, and wherever it is in a Christian university or a seminary, I'm telling you today, we're in a battle for the soul of this nation. This is a real conflict that we're dealing with that our children are going to be, they're going to be in in an onslaught that most of us of my generation or your generation, I'm dealing with grandkids now, many of you are dealing with children, they're dealing with issues you never had to deal with as a young person, very early. And that's why the church is a partnership with the family and the home to teach Christian truth and Christian values. Jesus grew in wisdom. He grew in stature. It probably implies the whole aspect of physical growth. Jesus' father was a carpenter. Carpenters in those days was one of the most rigorous because a lot of it was shipbuilding, one of the most rigorous tasks that you could have. In fact, early church fathers suggest that Jesus may have spent that next, the last time Joseph is mentioned right here. We don't know when or how early he died. Even the early church fathers don't mention much about it, but they do imply that Jesus took over his trade and cared for the family during that whole period of time. Yeah, some of you have been to the Holy Land, right? You're just nodding, you're not raising your hand. This, all right, There's a few raising their hands. You spend all day riding in an air-conditioned van. You get back to your hotel worn out, right? I want you to realize Jesus walked where you just rode. 
This man was a man's man, if you want to use that terminology. Anyone that could be flogged and then carry his own cross. We're talking about somebody who is a, verd, a, a, a paragon of fitness. Some years ago, a layman came to me and asked me to write a book for him for his kind of business because he was really into fitness. He had developed a community I lived in. It was a fitness community, really into diet and exercise. And I said, only if I can title it and, and write it from a scriptural viewpoint. And I wrote the book. It's called Well to Serve. Fitness is about stewardship of your body for the kingdom of God. See, I find a lot of people get into fitness for all the wrong reasons. Man, I want to impress the babies down at the beach. Forget that. Most of us ain't going to make that. And it's not an appropriate goal anyway. The reason that I want to be fit, the reason I take care of my body, is because it's the only instrument God has to use where his gifts operate. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, Wednesday night, a couple of weeks from now, you'll get a chance because we're filming some videos on this area of spiritual gifts. In Romans chapter 12, Paul lists the spiritual gifts, right? One of the lists. Go back to Romans 6, Romans 7. He says, present your bodies to God. How does it start Romans 12.1? Present your bodies, living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. You say, how do you talk to your kids about sexual purity? Same way Paul did. What does he say in 1 Corinthians? Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Would you join the Spirit with immorality? You see, all of this is about God's viewpoint. Why did he give us a physical body? Why did he give us the, the, the resources to be fit? The reason is because of his kingdom. Favor with God. The spiritual dimension. Jesus was parented with a passion to do the will of God and advance the kingdom of God. Some years ago, Richard Ross, you all know the name Richard, he's one of our seminary professors really involved in youth ministry, wrote a book together called Parenting with Kingdom Purpose. Came, uh, Richard came to me, I was president at that time, and he said, would you write the, the biblical portion of this? He said, I'm, I'm really burdened about what I've read about this. And it was a study that came out of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And the study indicated that the most at-risk teenager in America was the teenager whose parents were nominal Christians. What they discovered is that parents who were not religious at all, maybe even atheistic, their kids often went towards spiritual values because they saw it missing in their family. The children of parents who embraced their Christian faith, and I'm going to talk about that, totally, they generally followed in their their, kid, their, their parents' steps and, and values. Nominal Christian. When I read this study, my first thought was Easter, Christmas only. You know what nominal Christians are. Those are the guys who show up Easter, Christmas. That, that's not the definition they use. These were parents who attended regularly. They may sing in the choir. They may tuck up offering. In other words, they may be visibly active in the church. Are you with me? Here's what a nominal Christian was in this study. When they walked out that door, that was the end of what was their Christian commitment. In other words, the, the kids might be sitting in the back seat, and parents walk out the door, and pastor standing there, and dad says, oh, pastor, what a great sermon. Love that sermon. Oh, man, you got us today. Stepped on my toes. The mom might say, you know, I don't know why that minister of music lets that gal sing every solo. She's awful. 
can't carry a tune in the bucket. Now, they are saying one thing at church, and then they're sitting in the car saying the exact opposite. They get home, and kids see their dad sitting, filling out his taxes, trying to figure out how he can cheat the government. And he's been at church all week. In other words, nothing that happened there transferred to the home. And they say those kids are the most at-risk teenagers in America from a spiritual vantage point because they see it as a facade. When I was teaching at Wingate, I had a young man that was in my class, and it was an Old Testament survey class, and he was bored stiff. I could tell it's one of those classes you had to take if you went to a Baptist school, you know, had Old Testament survey, New Testament survey. This is a preacher's kid. Knew his dad, good, good dad, good kid. One day I was lecturing on a, a, a pagan king that appears in the Word of God. This guy just, just light bulb went on. And uh, so I let class out early and I called him up and I said, what happened today? And he said, what do you mean what happened? I said, I watched. I said, you don't pay much attention all the time. And all of a sudden, you, you heard that guy's name and what, what went on? He said, I studied about, listen to me, parents. He said, I studied about him in my real history class. I said, excuse me, your real history class? He said, yeah, you know real history. I said, what do you think this is? Now, he'd been raised in church. It dawned on me what he thought about what he had been taught in church. And, and sometimes we're guilty, by the way, of doing this. You know, we, we tell the story of Noah by a little song. Go for Barky Barky. You know, remember Noah built his ark with Barky Barky. You know what that sounds like? Nursery rhyme. I'm not knocking the songs or anything else. I just want you to understand where this kid was coming from. What had happened, he'd grown up in a context where the Bible stories were almost treated like Narnia. Are you with me on Narnia? You know what you do is you step through the wardrobe in your grandma's house, and you come out in a land where lions die for you and beavers talk. Tragically, Somehow he had gotten the idea that this was Bible history, but not real history. So that when he got to university and he heard these historical PhD dudes talking about the fallacy and the errors in the Word of God, he didn't have a leg to stand on. Folks, we need to understand how important it is in our day to teach the Word of God as truth without error. And that every word of this is profitable for instruction in righteousness. He who had favor with God and favor with man. Jesus was an amazing guy. He related well to children. He related well to women. He related well to men. His earliest disciples were fishermen and tax collectors. He related well to the upper crust and the lower crust, if there is such a crust. For me, it's what's in the middle of that crust, some apple pie, whatever it is. But Jesus related well to everyone because his parents had trained him in relationships. You know, I realized when I was seminary president, I had a lot of really smart theologians that came through our campus that had no people skills and they don't make very good pastors. 
So you got to have all of this balanced development. So let me go back to the first question. As a parent or as a grandparent with your influence on your grandkids, what is your primary goal by which you say, you know, I was a good steward of those children? Well, let me give you mine. This is our family kind of motto. You can write it down if you want to. My goal is for my children, my grandchildren, to advance God's kingdom by his power and for his glory. You say, where'd you get that? The Lord's Prayer. It's a benediction. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the So I want them to understand that the kingdom that we have is passing away. You do know that, don't you? Hebrews says everything that has been shaken is going to be shaken again. Therefore, since we are inheriting an eternal kingdom. Do your children know that this eternal kingdom is your priority? That this is what gets you up in the morning, that what puts you in bed at night, this is what your prayer for them is. That is your focus in their life, that they would be kingdom citizens, and and whether they're going to be an athlete or a doctor or a physician, uh, a lawyer, uh, a mechanic, a seminary president, that the agenda that they hold most dear and whatever calling they have is to advance God's kingdom. How? By His power. Why? Nobody else lives that way today. For His glory. One day, we'll get to experience His glory face to face. This won't be Duran singing about it. He'll be singing in His presence, rather. And that's when it all makes sense. That's when it all fits together. Let's bow together. I don't know where you are in this whole story today. If you don't know Christ as Savior, that's our first concern. We want you to know Him and love Him. If you're here and you don't have a church home, I'm going to say to you, parents, grandparents, one of the most important gifts you can give your child is this faithfulness like Jesus' parents gave to Him. This was what they did regularly. This was where they were. Did you not know I had to be in my Father's house? Maybe you're here and you just need to recommit yourself and your home to Christ. Father, right now we pray your Holy Spirit would do that which you alone can do and that bring a harvest to the preaching of your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to nrhbc.org.